0: Hey folks, I wanted to give you a heads up before you started listening that this is a very long episode, like an hour and 45 minute long episode. Uh, I thought about breaking it in two, but that just seemed a little ridiculous. So I just left it as one big piece, and I hope that you really enjoy it. Welcome to the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I want to give a big shout out to the fine people who are supporting the Patreon. Not only are they making this happen, which uh, certainly I feel very supported by that process, uh, but also they've started getting all sorts of great new things. I've been recording extra Patreon exclusives with the guests who've been on. Uh, We've had Jen Zart on talking about some astrological aspects Uh, We've had Al Cummins talking about geomancy and pizza magic, and uh, we've had the Stacking Skulls crew on talking about their musical influences, both spiritually and ridiculously in their lives. And all of this stuff is only for people who are supporting the Patreon. So please consider it. Think about how many hours of this podcast you've listened to, and jump over to patreon.com slash the hermit's lamp if you pledge five dollars an episode you will get access to all of that good stuff but there are perks at many levels as well thanks for supporting it enjoy the episode
1: hello everybody um you're hearing a different voice as the host of this week's uh, Hermit's Lamp podcast. I'm Susie Chang, friend of Andrew, and uh, Andrew has kindly invited me to come on the show in order to interview him about his new uh, deck, the Orisha Tarot, since he obviously could not interview himself. <laughs> uh, normally, at the beginning of an interview, what I would do is introduce the the guest, but um, since the guest is the host, I guess I'll just do a very cursory introduction of what I know about my friend Andrew. Um, as you know, he is the proprietor of the Hermit's Lamp, the uh, store, which is a, uh, a, a, a touchstone for all of, us, all of us in the tarot community, and uh, he is the uh, voice behind the Hermit's Lamp podcast. He is um, an artist in his own right and a creator of beautiful works. And uh, and uh, he is also a priest in the Lukumi tradition, and we'll be talking about that some more. But the reason that we're here today is to talk about the Orisha Tarot, which is coming out from Llewellyn in uh, September. What day is it?
2: Basically today, according to Amazon. For real? Fantastic!
1: Yeah, yeah this is this is very exciting. So um, I understand, Deb. Decks are already shipping out, and, uh, and I was also particularly interesting, interested in doing this podcast because uh, we're both Llewellyn authors. I've got a book coming out from Llewellyn on tarot correspondences just next month. So shout out to Llewellyn for supporting the work of tarot lovers everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, so the Orisha Tarot is officially out. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. It's been many years in the making, hasn't it?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always one of those things. Where do you, where do you count that from? You know, I <laughs> I, I signed my contract for it about two years ago, mm-hmm. um, maybe a little bit less than that. So that's probably as good a time as any, but even at that point I had sort of already made a dozen cards and had spent five or six years prior to that thinking about it and trying to figure out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So, you
1: know. Right. And uh, actually I'd like to, back up even further to the beginning of your story in this tradition uh and to find out a little bit because it's been about 10 years i think you've said something like that
2: 10 years as a priest
1: Mm -hmm. uh, as
2: Mm -hmm. as of august and uh it was uh 2000 when i started getting involved in this tradition so it's been about 18 years that i've been
1: involved. Wow! So that's really—it's been a long journey for you. And I—I I was listening to your wonderful interview on our uh, with our friends at the Tarot Visions podcast. And I think you mentioned that you came into it through kind of a circle of friends who were exploring different esoteric traditions. And um, and I and I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about what drew you. You mentioned that you were. You know, a friend had brought in this uh, his own explorations of Lukumi, and I wanted to, first of all, sort of talk a tiny bit about the context of Lukumi, since not everyone will be familiar with it, and also a little bit more about your attraction to it. Now, as I understand it, Lukumi is a, a Cuban offshoot of the greater Yoruba African traditional religion, yeah?
2: So. The story you get will depend a lot on who you talk to, like mm-hmm. many things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know the so at the time of uh, the Atlantic slave trade, uh, uh, Yoruba wasn't really cohesive at all. That whole area was a bunch of uh, city states and and so on, right? So mm-hmm. this idea that uh, there was sort of one cohesive uh, African traditional religion or ATR. Which these things spreaded from isn't isn't really historically accurate. Mm-hmm. You know? If you if you came from uh, you know the city of, of Ife, uh, you know then then your tradition slants in one direction. Certain deities are are you know held above others. If you come from Oyo, then uh, you know that's going to have a different uh, you know different set of traditions uh, and sort of a different kind of more primary veneration or tilting towards certain deities over others. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you're down, down sort of in the ca- the coastal parts of kind of Western Africa towards the south end of that sort of prominence, the way in which some of the Orisha are going to manifest, especially the water Orisha uh, are different than if you're sort of further north or inland or or in other places, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's important to to understand that these sort of, All of these uh, Orisha traditions and their diasporic manifestations, you know, as they found themselves in different countries, uh, you know, throughout the Caribbean and North and South America. um, They all vary depending on which which groups of people were enslaved and brought over, which traditions survived, uh, what happened in relationship to the indigenous culture that was present. You know, in Cuba, the indigenous culture was sort of pretty, pretty much wiped out so there wasn't much uh, inclusion of that into the traditions, uh, whereas in other parts, the you know, especially in South America, uh, you know, some of those cultures continued to sort of live alongside, and there was sort of more sharing of ideas.
1: Yeah, it seems like in many of the sort of diasporic manifestations, you see uh, faiths that have been heavily syncretized with whatever was going on locally.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you know, well, the the question of synchronization is always a uh, is always an interesting one, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Uh,
2: you know, I mean, the the story that uh, some people like to say is that uh, they were syncretized in order to conceal them and to prevent, right? You know, to protect them and to allow them to uh, practice covertly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm sure that that's true in some ways, um, but also, you know, there's a lot of in in non Western approaches to magic um, and to spirituality, there's often a, a, a real sense of, hey, what's what's that guy good for? What's that what's that spirit? Right. What's right. that one going to do for me? There's this sort of very um, practical notion of, you know, you come across somebody and you're like, hey, I read about this guy. You know, what, what's what's that saint good for? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and there's the syncretization that happens for sure. But there's also the the notion of like having more spiritual people in your corner is not a bad idea at all, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: And so, so I think that you know that history is um, it's it's interesting to try and unravel, but I think that you know we'll never really fully understand exactly what was going on with everybody involved.
1: Exactly. And I think that you know people people of faith kind of make faith work however they can, right? You know, it's sort of like you'll always have schools of thought that try to keep, you know, try, try to distinguish and separate and sort of go towards a more purist mentality in terms of practicing faith. And then there are others who will say, well, we work with what we've got. You yes, know? Exactly.
2: Yeah. And so, and so to answer kind of like about my lineage, uh, my lineage, uh, as far back as we know it originates with uh, uh, this woman, Monserrate, um, mm-hmm. you know, she's the, the farthest back that we can trace that. Um, and, uh, in my, in my lineage originates in Cuba, um, and through those sort of Cuban traditions, so, or Cuban mm-hmm. variations of the diasporic traditions, for sure.
1: Right, right. So we're talking about, we're specifically talking about a tradition that came to Cuba through the slave trade. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you actually have some reference to that in, I think, your Ten of Swords card, which seems Absolutely. really appropriate. Yeah. yeah. So um, so yeah, I wanted to know a little bit more about your personal journey in terms of whether you yourself grew up in any kind of faith community or whether you were, you know, did you have to rebel against one? Did you long to belong to a faith community? What, uh, what, was, what was that like for you? And what was discovering this community like for you?
2: So I think that one of the best things that my parents did was uh, not raise me with any traditions at all. Mm-hmm. My parents weren't particularly religious you know and uh
1: so what did you rebel against (laughs) i
2: didn't didn't rebel against it i mean i rebelled against everything but Mm -hmm. we'll we'll get to that but Mm -hmm. um (laughs) what what that meant was you know when i when i said to my mom i wanted to like go to the uh psychic fair and find some books on magic when i was 12 my mom Mm -hmm. was like okay you (laughs) know when i was like picked out alistair crowley she's like sure go ahead yeah Uh, so that meant that I like had a lot of space to really uh, get involved in and think about other things, you know? And, yeah. Uh, you know, other than sort of, uh, you know, when my, when my parents split up and, uh, and we started going to Anglican church, mostly I think because my mom wanted some community,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
2: I didn't really have a lot of connection or experience with any kind of organized religion. But what happened was when I was 14, I almost died in a car accident right after that i wanted to understand everything and so i didn't rebel against anything as such but what i what i really wanted to know was like what does this all mean right like all you know you know at that point i'd already been reading tarot for a year i'd already Mm -hmm. been studying crowley for a couple of years you know i mean i like it was already really invested in sort of a magical worldview and um and at that point then, I just started reading everything I could get my hands on, right? So I'm in like grade 9 and 10 and reading Nietzsche and like sure. seeking out, you know, people who can talk about these things. And, you know, the the youth group at the church was run by an ex-Jesuit. And so i like corner him and be like, hey, tell me about this, tell me about that, tell me about this. And for the most part, people would indulge me and have conversations with me about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Was to, there
1: another organized religion that you were drawn to before Leuka
2: no i mean crowley's Mm -hmm. work you know yes for me it was basically all that crowley's work
1: and you were in the oto
2: (laughs) yeah when i when i was in my it wasn't until much later though it wasn't until i was uh you know well into my 20s that i actually even considered i was like oh maybe the oto exists here in toronto maybe i could find people Mm -hmm. i just practiced independently and and pursued and tried to talk to people right so and then basically I, i left the OTO and, and the Orm Solace, which is another initiatory group Mm -hmm. uh, and moved into, into practicing lukumi, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was my journey.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's been, as you said, like an 18 year journey at this point. And um, so that's something I wanted to sort of ask you about um, in terms of doing the artwork, telling the stories introducing the wider world to this tradition, you know, often when we are talking about faiths we didn't grow up in, you know, there's this question of whether it's your story to tell or whether, you know, at, at what point do you become a representative? And so that was that's a question I have for you. At what point did you feel that um, you were invested enough or, you know, uh, that you had a strong enough sense to belong of belonging to be able to bring this to other people.
2: Sure. So, um, there's a whole bunch of pieces to that answer.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It's a, it's a complex one.
2: (laughs) We'll start with this. When you, um, when you become a priest, right. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you become initiated into, into a lineage, right. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and and when we talk about ancestors, the, the word we use most of the time is Egun, right? Mm-hmm. We mean Egun right. to mean um, ancestors by blood and mm-hmm. uh, and ancestors by initiation, right? right? And so, you know, my Egun are are those uh, priests of the Orishas going back to Monserrate and, and beyond, you know, although lost to history mm-hmm. on that. And so part of the conversation for me is, this is my lineage, this is my, these are my ancestors at this point, right? And, uh, you know, and this is something that we take pretty seriously within the tradition, right? Initiation and lineage are really significant.
1: Right. Uh,
2: and so that's part of the thing. Part of it is, uh, although, although my parents did not practice this tradition, um, I, am, I am initiated into this lineage in a traditional way. Uh, so so there's of, a
1: difference here between blood lineage and spiritual lineage.
2: But the word, the word does not differentiate, and we don't mm-hmm. differentiate
1: mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so
2: if you uh, if you we could we could you could get a reading and your your tr- a traditional reading and your reading could come in a good way or a bad way, depending on what's what's going on with you um, from from the egg one right from the right
1: Edwin. right
2: and when we're, and when we're divining uh, if it's possible, we want to mark who that is, and we would ask uh ancestors from the lineage and and ancestors from the bloodline depending Mm -hmm. on what the what the reading came out as it would guide us and we could narrow it down and be like oh yeah you know the the ancestors the ancestors are upset with you and in this case it's someone from your blood family or in some other case it's somebody from your initiatory lineage but we don't differentiate the word means the same right
1: yes i i seem to remember reading something this past week about the idea that you know uh your your there's sort of one set one blood bloodline sort of over one shoulder and spiritual guidance over the other, but they sort of combine and you need both. Um, and I guess I I guess you know speaking about the outlook and cosmology of the faith, would it be fair to say that you know you you come into this religion, but the religion itself, you know, proceeds from the assumption that. Everybody, no matter where you come from, no matter who your parents or grandparents, etc., were, you know, has has a relationship or a potential relationship they haven't yet realized with the Orisha.
2: I don't think that that's actually true.
1: Okay, so uh, that's what I'm trying to get to the yeah, yeah, bottom of yeah. here.
2: So, um, you know, before we come to Earth, we uh, we choose our destiny, right? We choose uh, our ori, right? Mm-hmm is sort of uh, not easily translated into one thing, but if you think of it as sort of your guardian angel, your destiny mm-hmm. and your higher self, all as one entity, um, that's probably a, a, a reasonable set of uh, points to make sense of it for people who have those ideas already. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you choose your destiny before you come to come to earth, it's sealed. Right. Um, right. And so, it's, uh, we don't, we don't know what all it entails before we come, um, but if it's part of your destiny to get initiated into the Orisha tradition, then, then opportunities will present themselves for that. It's not to say that you couldn't force them otherwise,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
2: but those wouldn't be in alignment with your destiny. And really, you know, when we're talking about sort of uh, initiation and, and sort of, connection and those kinds of things um they really all ought to either be dictated by divination um or dictated by uh arisha in possession of people right yes um, it's not it's not really you know there, there are many people who will come there are people who come and you're just like yeah yeah we'll help you right
4: mm-hmm. um,
2: or the people will come and be like no you should you should go do something else right mm-hmm. here's a direction go over that way we'll look at those people you know, I go look at these other traditions. Um, it's not, it's definitely not for, it's not meant for everybody per se. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: And, um, it's not, it's not closed in, you know, in any particular way, although certain, certain houses and certain, you know, um, lineages might, might be more closed to outsiders than others based Mm -hmm. on a whole bunch of different factors. But, um, it's much more so that, uh, You know, if it's part of your destiny, the opportunity will arise. Uh, If it's not, then you know you might run into it, but they might say, "You know, no, you're good. Good Do that other thing."
1: Right, right. Well, this is interesting to me because I've noticed that there seem to be a lot of people who are clearly didn't grow up within the culture who have become drawn to this Mm -hmm. religion or some form of it, some form of the faith, and you know, taking it on. And it seems as though there is, um, you know, a certain openness to those who commit themselves, whether or not they grew up or had family or, you know, understood the culture, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that there there are opportunities definitely for people to engage and connect with, with these traditions. And there are, definitely practitioners around who are, um, you know, open, you know, to mm-hmm. people who didn't grow up in these traditions and so on, for sure, right? I mean, that's right. Definitely, right, definitely a right. thing. And, you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I see going on is that people are, certain people seem like they're, they're looking for tradition, right? They're looking for, they've been kind of doing something that it doesn't have a, a long, long living history. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of looking backwards for, for, for looking around for those things that do, you know? Yeah. That's part of why yeah. the Tarot de Marseille is sort of resurfacing.
1: Right, right.
2: That, you know, it's, I think that it's why, you know, the Orisha traditions are, are shifting and coming forward more, um, you know?
1: Right. That's one of the things that, I guess that's why I was asking you so much about your own backgrounds in terms of, you know, uh, working independently versus belonging. Right, Mm -hmm. because I think that that's something that a lot of us struggle with, especially those of us who grew up, you know, in an era where uh, religious community isn't something that one takes for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I think we should probably turn a little bit to the to the work itself. Um, Let me me finish answering
2: uh, Mm because we started with this question of uh, 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 me and and sort of uh, you know doing this deck right, sort of. Mm-hmm. Like well, and we kind of started talking about the the ancestral piece, and we drifted away, and there are a couple other things you know that I want to sort okay of, right, good yeah um, so I mean one of the things like i did I did a bunch of things around creating and starting this process and getting sort of permission before I started this process, you know mm-hmm. and um certainly, certainly one of them was sitting with my elders and talking about what I wanted to do and uh you know getting advice from them
4: mm-hmm.
2: and uh Certainly, part of it was you know asking the Rishas themselves, asking the lagoa like, well, for you know his blessing to proceed with this project, mm-hmm. and uh, and also you know sort of um, sitting down with people and sort of uh, showing my art with uh, you know with you know different people and people of color and so on to kind of consult around my choices around representations and so on. So
1: absolutely, absolutely. I really, I really
2: mm-hmm. wanted to. Um, you know, you can never please anybody, and I'm sure there are people who will be upset by the deck. And well, that's that's life, right? But
1: right, but it sounds as low as though you have a lot of support, at least within the community, you have access to for the work that you undertake.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. So, um, so yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about like approaching making a tarot deck, coming out of the various traditions you come out of. So, I know that you started out with Crowley and the Thoth deck, or the, I know you pronounce it Thoth, <laughs> and uh, and also that your com- your primary commitment is a reader for oh, quite a while has been the Marseille deck. So, um, so how did? Why did it seem like a natural choice to you to translate or to represent what you know from Orisha as a tarot deck? You know, I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, since there isn't an obvious 78-card structure, you know, you know, number of deities, you know, all the sort of correspondences that tend to underlie at least the golden dawn derived decks or the general tradition of tarot reaching back to the 15th century, you know, why, why do a tarot deck and not something more freeform like an Oracle deck?
2: Well, because one of the reasons why I made this deck was that I wanted to, um, to create a bridge between Mm -hmm. uh, the, the people who have traditional experience with the Orishas um, and people who have experience with the traditional tarot structure
4: mm-hmm.
2: and i wanted to uh use that those two pieces as a way of creating a bridge so that people could sort of have more understanding of each other and of what's going on right and, yeah yeah and so i really you know i mean i've, I've got nothing against oracle decks I, I mean i released one earlier in the year mm-hmm. but um, in, th- in trying to think about something as large and expansive as the Orisha traditions, um, it really having a clear structure like the tarot structure mm-hmm. allowed me to um, frame and set the conversation in a way that
1: um, that allowed me to to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. Yeah. It's otherwise, how do you know when it's done?
2: <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, we, we divine with you know upwards of 256 different signs right each of those signs is is as complicated or as a trump card or as sophisticated as a trump card right and, and then there's you know depending on who you ask um you know i mean a bunch of primary orishas and and maybe you know even like hundreds if you start getting into different paths and roads and it just mm-hmm. it just expands infinitely in every direction right so
1: Mm-hmm. I'm curious whether there's much crossover between the two communities uh, that you've noticed. I mean, tarot and Orisha.
2: Sure, lots of people. I mean, I know lots mm-hmm. of people who are initiated. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, that that sort of um, syncretic piece—that like, hey, what can I do with this? You know—that mm-hmm. continues to be a prominent part of a lot of Orisha practitioners' lives, right?
4: I'm yeah,
2: it's like more purely you know like just just the or orisha stuff Uh, many people practice some combination of you know palo mayumbe and spiritismo and card reading and you know Mm -hmm. other things depending on on who they are and what what they feel is important and what they have access to you know so there's not there's not a lot of like sort of hard rules. Yeah. Uh, about the Orisha tradition. It's certainly not the Orisha I practice. Um, right. I mean, they definitely don't mix them in one ceremony.
1: But um, it's okay if you practice them separately.
2: If you, to, if you go to church on Sunday and you, you know, and then you tend your ancestral Evolvida and then you have some Orisha and you go between them, and depending on what you feel and need, it depends on where you go. It's a really common experience for a lot of people. So,
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you addressed that because that's something I was really curious about. You know, you don't dilute your practice by sort of mixing a bit of everything. On the other hand, you're one person. And, you know, if you're drawn to different practices, then perhaps you're drawn to different practices for different needs.
2: Sure. And yeah. if the yeah. don't want you doing that, they'll tell you.
1: <laughs> right.
2: They'll, they'll be like, stop it. Do that.
1: <laughs> that's but, not cool. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so a little bit about sort of what people can expect when they're approaching the cards. Now, it's not like there's a particular orisha per card. There's orisha in some representations in some cards. Uh, some cards have concepts from Lukumi. Some cards have uh, one of the Odu on them. So sort of like how did, how did you approach how you wanted to impart all of this information structurally into the deck?
2: Mm -hmm. so i really i wanted to try and avoid what i had seen done in other decks Mm -hmm. uh, in the past not because it's it's wrong per se but because i feel like it doesn't give the conversation enough meat right Mm -hmm. a lot of decks would say well shongo is the king and therefore he's the emperor and so when i draw the emperor i'm going to draw shongo right right and that's fair. You know I mean? Shango Shango is the emperor, right? He's, he's the king of the orishas, um, mm-hmm. but, but there's a lot more to it than that, right? What does that mean? And what does, in what way does kingship or, or power in that way show up in a variety of different contexts? And what are the different conversations that we could have, in, right?
1: Exactly. Right?
2: And so when I was sort of working with the, the trump cards, I wanted to sort of embody the ideas that I see being behind, uh, you know, behind the cards themselves—spiritual authority, earthly authority, you know, uh, fortune and chance—you know, like different things. I wanted to, um, I want to sort of embody those bigger ideas and try and avoid kind of just a straight. This this symbol equals this symbol here. Yeah,
1: I call that the matchy match. <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: When I was looking at the number cards, you know, which for me often represents sort of more the, the the what and the how of life, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of focus more on uh, stories, you know, and sort of those, those things that tend to be more about, uh, you know, particular patakis or stories or ideas um, mm-hmm. from the lives of the Orishas and, and the lives of their practitioners and where that kind of overlaps and integrates with, with those numbered cards. And then when I got to the court cards, um, I wanted to, I wanted to really kind of explore the way in which the court cards can be sort of seen to line up with roles people might play in the community. Right. Right. And so when we're looking at those, we see, you know, the one of them, you know, the Aleo, the new person who's who's just coming to this tradition and who's beginning to learn and they're, they're making an offering to you know the butcher who is a very skilled and important part of the ceremonies and the community to the elders who run the ceremonies and the singers and the drummers and the artists and all of those things so i i kind of went through and sifted those ideas into where i felt they aligned with the court cards best Mm -hmm. Um, so the court cards then become uh really uh positions or 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 roles one might find oneself in the religion and you know, over time, just like, you know, with the traditional idea of the court cards, over time we might move between, them Or we yeah. might be, you know, we might play this role in this community and that role in another community um, and so on, so.
1: Right, right. And I think that underscores what I think sometimes we forget about court cards, which is that we can be any of them and we are any and all of them at different times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, about that, a word you brought up just just before, uh, which I think is pretty important for us to discuss, the word pataki, um, the story. So can you tell us a little bit about how that, uh, how, how that is contextualized within the faith? And also, uh, we should mention that that is the name of the book that goes with the deck, Patakis of the Orisha Tarot. Yeah.
2: So um, patakis are the, the stories of the Orishas and their practitioners, that are meant to be uh, instructive, right? Mm-hmm. The word uh, parable, uh, you mm-hmm. know, as a way to to maybe you know give a different word for it in English, and right. you know, especially especially when we're divining, right? We'll often um, give a proverb, and we'll often you know uh, tell a story about the orishas, and it's this is part of this oral tradition of it that we are expressing these ideas in ways that allows us to tell the person things in ways that are easier to hold on to, easier to integrate, They give us some, some meat rather than just saying, Hey, don't do this thing. Mm-hmm. I also say, we might also tell the story of one of, when one of the Orishas did that thing and what happened to them. Yes. Like, yes. oh Yeah. yeah. Okay. I see that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that thing because it's, because it's going to happen. Right? Be a problem.
1: There's something about these stories that's so human and relatable right you know i mean is it is it not the case that the orisha themselves were at one time human or before they became more than human
2: well that's a it's a contested
1: mm-hmm.
2: somewhat contested point of view um many many orisha are what's known as uh Urumale. um they uh they came from heaven right, they, they originated mm-hmm. purely from spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are Orishas who are considered uh, deified ancestors, Shango uh, being one of them, um, you know, um, Odudua being another one. Um, you know, there are these these spirits, th- these people who led great lives and led their communities and so on, uh, and became, uh, you know, deified after their death. The question that comes up in those conversations what, then also is were those lives um that orisha you know descending and living on earth for a period of time
1: yeah. yes so, right
2: i mean yeah. i think that it's i think that there's no clear answers to that mm-hmm. but in general the majority of the orishas uh did not start as human but mm-hmm. originated uh, as as part of the unfolding of creation and uh and then came to sort of live these lives and, you know sh- have these stories and, and experiences that we now understand and also you know when we're talking about some of these stories uh i think that we also need to understand that some of them and and there's no real easy historical way to say which ones are not um but a, a good chunk of them were probably stories about priests of those spirits i see who made these mistakes in their lives or mm-hmm. had, you know it's like oh yeah you remember Bill, the priest of Obato who lived down the road? You remember <laughs> when he did this? Yeah, yeah, I remember that, right? Um, <laughs> right. Then, right. Then those stories become, uh, you know, myth, part of the myth, right? Part of the, the lexicon of these traditions. So.
1: Yes, I guess what, um, what, what makes me wonder, you know, what their relationship with mortality and humanity is, is because these stories, the emotions and the sort of currents that they represent are things that anyone can relate to. You know, there's jealousy, there's anger, there's, you know, um, there's infidelity, there's theft, there's, you know, there's, there there are things that you don't sort of in the same way that in the Greek mythology, you see people, (laughs) you see deities acting badly, right? Or in ways show that they can make mistakes too.
2: Yeah, definitely. One of my elders likes to say, you know, they, they made those mistakes. You don't need to, okay? So, yeah. <laughs> right? But, you know, we're all human, right? We, we're going we're gonna to learn or we're not going to learn. But we'll learn one way or another,
1: right? Right, right. So uh, a little bit more about deck structure. Um, so first of all, I, I noticed immediately that there were some sort of uh, ways in which your experience with tarot informed the deck, uh, first of all. There's definitely a little bit of a thought sensibility in that, for example, your strength and justice are ordered in the way that the Thoth deck and the Marseille deck do, rather than the Rider-Waite-Smith. Uh, I noticed that you have uh, ordered it wands, cups, swords, discs, uh, fire, water, air, earth, which is a very hermetic thing. Um, and I, uh, and the very fact that you call them discs is also you know, uh, comes out of the Thoth tradition. But, uh, but I also wanted to know um, a little bit, for example, of, I can sort of understand um, where the uh, structure for the uh, for the for the majors comes from, but I what I wanted to know a little bit more is about the pips because you know your primary reading background comes from as far as the you know assigning meaning to the pips, I guess would be based in Thoth originally. I wondered if there was sort of more relationship, you know, would would someone who comes from a writer Wade Smith tradition instantly recognize, or from a Golden Dawn tradition instantly recognize the concepts in each of these minor cards. Well, I mean, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I can tell you that I certainly did.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, here's, here's my hope about this deck, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously I started, I started with the top deck and I read with that deck for many, you know, for many years exclusively.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but I also read a ton of books on tarot, right? Mm-hmm. During that time, I had a lot of conversations, especially once I started branching out with the communities more. And you know, I mean, I've I've read lots of books on the Waitsmith tradition, and you know, I mean, you know, all that sort of and a bunch of that older stuff, you know, um, mm-hmm. Hermetic or otherwise. So when I was when I was creating this deck, there are you know people who are reading the book. You'll come to some spots, and you'll be you you know you'll hit a few cards where it's like, you know, in the Marseille tradition, people often think of this card this way. And I'll give a little bit of context. And then when you go and read it, it'll make a ton of sense. Yeah. And that's really mostly because I could have, you know, I could have written 10 times as much about these cards as I did. Um, but Llewellyn said, you can only make a book.
1: <laughs> right. And, right.
2: Um, and I, and I really endeavored to sort of kind of hold what I see as kind of the middle of the road on these meetings. Right. You right. know, I didn't, the numbering, the numbering is the numbering, and to me, ultimately, the numbering. Uh, this might be blasphemy from a hermetic point of view, but to me, the numbering of the trump cards is really largely irrelevant.
1: Right? I think it's arbitrary. Yeah,
2: it's a it's a, it's a yeah. historical precedent that so.
1: Was, you know? Although, 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 Andrew, I mean, I think it's important that you made eloqua the fool. I think you know. For sure. Yeah, as the as the the orisha who comes first, right?
2: For sure. Yeah, Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like choosing, choosing justice to be this number or that number. I'm like, oh, I, right. I never, I, I almost never even look at the numbers when I read cards because I just mm-hmm. cards, right? Um, right, right. So, you know, this deck is really meant to be, uh, you know, a kind of relatively even uh, representation of, of tarot as it exists today, right? Um, so yeah, yeah. It's not none of it's slanted too much one way or another. There's no like, well, you you need to know that Crowley called this card, the Eon, you need to know that the, the goddess nui means this. I mean, it's it's right. not like that at all. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, my, my, my sensation as I was getting to know the deck was really that, you know, it was about the stories and which story fit which card. best.
2: Yeah. It's one of the things that I actually really, um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed that I would have, felt this was so important but the feedback that I've gotten from uh the people who've gotten their books already or gotten their copies already or who I shared advanced copies with and stuff is um including some non-tarot people who just are reading it because they really like me uh, <laughs> is that the feedback I keep getting is that the is that the material is really accessible and to me that is uh that's like a really important thing you know I didn't yes. want to make this difficult I, I avoided using uh, as much jargon or like, you know, Lakumi words or other things as possible. I really, you know, I didn't, I didn't get into hermetic philosophy, particularly anywhere. Like there, there are all these branches and wings of my, my own personal experiences and practice that I, I just brought them all down to the dining hall and was like, all right, let's all, let's all have lunch together and talk about stuff in a general way. <laughs> you know, I tried to make that happen. So.
1: Right. Well, I think that, you know... um I think it's really important for anyone coming to this deck to get to know the book, to read the book, really read the book, because it's, you know, 350 pages, it's real, it's got every single page not only has the story that's associated with the card, but also sort of breaks down the symbols that you included in the card, uh, what its divinatory meaning might be, and sort of what the advice might be that goes with it. I found that incredibly helpful in terms of like, you know, if I came across a card where where my own sort of tarot background wasn't making it immediately obvious to me what you were trying to do, I could just go to the book and it was really clear, you know, within a minute. So I think that it's, this is one of those things where, um, you know, and I I generally am not a person who believes that readers always have to go to the book, but I think it is really enriching and helpful to contextualize using what you wrote for this deck.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean I think unless somebody has uh has a like a, a strong living practice with you know with the traditional Orisha practice, um yeah, it might be hard to hard to start just by looking at it. You know, what I mean yeah. obviously if yeah. come from those traditions and read cards uh, as well, then then maybe they don't read the book as much, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always interesting as I share the images on uh you know, on social media and stuff, you know, I get, you know, priests jumping on the on the thing and they like oh you chose to represent this here it's perfect you know
1: <laughs> right
2: like they right. they just get it right because they, they they have both of those pieces um but it's so nice to to see people being moved to see themselves and to see this tradition in in this way which is really gratifying so-
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we move off structure and start talking a little bit more about the art And the some specific cards um, Is there a sort of through line in each suit that we should be looking for? You know, something that's going on in wands only Something that's going on with, in cups or swords or discs
2: that was, that was a notion that I abandoned along the way
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, You know, in making, in making a deck There always comes this point where the reality check steps in And mm-hmm. you're like, this is the limit of what I can do you know, and, yeah,
4: yeah,
2: um, and the sort of the idea that there was sort of one through line for each set of suits, um, I, I didn't really, I, I couldn't really find it.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: um, you know, there are a couple other ideas about levels of detail and symbolic representation that I just realized I'd be spending another five years like hand drawing beaded beaded things on. A <laughs> I'm like, that can't happen.
1: Right. And if, I mean, there are certainly color and number correspondences you could have worked with, but it, by forcing it into, you know, the existing tarot structure or in, into hermetic structure, I think you would have been doing something that was not necessarily conducive to the most rich uh, environment of reading these cards. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, although I'm looking at sort of, I've separated my deck out, sorted it out, ace w- cups, uh, sort just looking at the aces and there's sorry wands cups swords disks. i'm looking at the aces and there's definitely i get at least just from my background i get an elemental feeling off of those cards you know a fire water air earth feeling and uh, even if that's not something that you intended to do or carried through throughout the deck it's still there's still something there i think
2: for sure i mean you know in in making this deck it's definitely uh a lot of stuff just sort of emerged right from Mm -hmm. from in the creative process. And although I spent a lot of time thinking and writing and making notes about what went where and why and and so on, when I sat down to make the cards, a lot of stuff just emerged as part of that process. Uh, you know, from the news, from the creativity by chance or or whatever, my unconscious formulated it. So there there's a lot of stuff in there that that happened as I was making the cards mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily fully fully thought out. So.
1: But which is just part of you as a reader and a practitioner.
2: Yeah. I mean, you spent 32 yeah. years working with the tarot, right? Like you know, <laughs> a lot of ideas in the back of the brain there that are trying to come out one way or another.
1: Right. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the way the cards look for those uh, people who haven't lucky enough to pick up their decks yet um it's a it's a gorgeous production first of all i think you you know the artwork's just stunning and llewellyn did a great job i think as well um first of all it's a borderless deck which thank you (laughs) you know that's that's just yeah
2: llewellyn uh let me do something that they had never done before which was uh, all the titles are hand, handwritten.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Written into the cards. Right. So are right. not obscured. They're easy enough to see when you're looking, but there's you can no find them. Yeah. At the top or the bottom. So they they, they fit in more with the artwork. So it's easier to kind of just look at the artwork or just look for the title when you need to. Um, right. That was something that we had a bunch of conversations with. The end. I
1: think it was a brilliant choice because, you know, it really foregrounds the story of the art. The art fills the frame. You know, everything about it allows you to immerse yourself in what's going on in that picture. And then secondarily you you know check out whatever title it was so that you can sort of match it up with your own tarot knowledge but i i really appreciated that and i'm really glad that they made that decision and you you know suggested it um and also it's the the colors are so saturated and so bold um so the 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 texture and look that you were going for was uh was based on gouache right well
2: so actually what i was so, I mean, I used to paint and gouache a lot before mm-hmm. I had kids. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, having <laughs> kids and having a space to set up art in a, you know, small yeah. urban space isn't really that easy, right? Right. Um, so, so certainly, I mean, that's a piece of my sensibility and my aesthetic. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the part of what I was really looking for is, you know, starting, it's hard to date now, but starting quite a while ago, I went from being like super, super structured and really trying to sort of make everything perfect to really mm-hmm. kind of moving to a more gestural and, and looser way of working. And so, you know, this kind of comes comes out of that, you know, sort of move away from, uh, you know, sort of pursuing absolute realism to, you know, pursuing something else. And then the other, the other piece of the aesthetic um, is, you know, I wanted to include different pieces of symbolism, um, but I didn't want to, like, make it look like the top deck where there's so many symbols that you don't really know what to look at.
1: Sometimes. Yes, yes.
2: And so one of the things that I, that I decided along the way was, you know, there's a lot of use of textiles, especially in, you know, in Africa and West Africa. Mm-hmm. and In the Orisha traditions, there's a lot of use of textiles in making thrones and making ceremonial outfits, um, you know, in making penuelos, which are like these elaborate uh, cloths that we, that we put on on top of the orishas sometimes. And so I wanted to kind of have a, have a a reference to that where they're trying to like emulate or create, like recreate specific patterns, but use that, that visual idea to create more of a, uh, a space for that symbolic language to, to hold, right? To the use yes. Of, to the use of number and through whatever other symbols got added to those designs and so on. So,
1: Yeah, I really picked up on the fact that the design sensibility behind this had that sort of sense of, uh, you know, scope and flow and um, bold lines that you get in textile and you know that's not something you always see in Terror. so it was really kind of a relief uh, to the eye to sort of not get too i don't know bound up in the busy
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um yeah i think that what we see is you know a sort of a looseness of the line and uh and uh, but at the same time a real exactness in terms of what symbols you wanted to portray and the way that you foregrounded them in each card. Um, so, so you did this actually on an iPad, right?
2: I did, yeah. I did all of this digitally. I've been working pretty much exclusively digitally for the last five or six years now, I guess. Ever since, yeah.
1: Yeah, and does that have to do with, you know, being busy, being a parent, being, you know, just trying to live life in addition to being an artist?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have a studio space. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have, you know, Toronto is apparently one of the most expensive cities in the world <laughs> to live in. Um, thanks for that, whoever's responsible for that. <laughs> but, um, but space is certainly at a premium. And, you know, the only space where I maybe could do more studio type work is at the shop. And I just spend lots of time at the shop seeing clients and doing other stuff. I don't really want to be at work, even if it's sort of as a creative outlet. And, right you know the ipads uh it's always with me and you know when i was making this deck i would just be like oh i've got an hour time to work on one of the cards a bit." you know yeah there's um, some writing or you know whatever it's just it's always at hand it's super portable and uh, right. especially i i got a, an ipad pro like one of the big ones and, uh, and the apple pencil which sort of finally i was able to make happen through mm-hmm. the process and you know it's uh it's the best thing ever like it's just
1: yeah um, and if you get interrupted you know you can just save it and then pick it up later yeah
2: you know and, I, and i'm sure like kind of from a production point of view too you know i mean uh you can work in layers like in photoshop it's, yeah it's a real treat so all the backgrounds are their own layers and all the symbols are
1: oh that's great
2: um, yeah you know, like the line work symbols and stuff mm-hmm. so if i make a mistake or if i want to change something i change my mind later so right like, you know
1: um, right. Plus, it gives I, you more freedom. I mean, it's like if you're doing doing a background, you don't want to just like stop to make room for the foreground, right? Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, I mean, I just sent all the photoshops to Lamont, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, they they asked me if they could uh, take some of them apart and use pieces for making the box and other stuff, which they did, which is fantastic. I'm so delighted with it. You know, it just it allows for uh, for a variety of options in a way that. Uh, traditional mediums just just don't,
1: you know? Yeah, I'm, I was really excited to realize that you did this in a digital format like that, just because I didn't know that you could create art like this in that way, and have it come out looking so good, you know? Mm. Um, and the other thing is that I just, I thought it was really funny that, just practically speaking, that it made so much sense for you. This is one of my sort of uh, hobby horses, the idea of just how difficult it is to be both a parent and a practitioner, you know, I mean, just to live your life and try to do this work is a constant struggle. Like, you know, you're in the middle of a banishing ritual and some kid is like coming through saying, mom, I missed the bus. (laughs) You know, It's like, it's every day, you know, trying to make that work is um, I think tricky for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad you found a way to, way to make this happen. Me too. <laughs> um, okay. So I'd love to, if you feel like it, I'd love to talk a little bit about specific cards. Um, if you could just give me a second, I have to plug uh, my, my laptop's going to run out of charge. I'd have to plug it in real quick. Yeah. Um, just be right there. Okay, we're good. All right. Uh, uh, and I can strip that out of the tape if you want later on. Okay, um, so let's talk about a couple majors. I, I wanted to return to the Fool card because uh, I think that's super <laughs> important um, where you have Elegois, uh, who is, I guess, you know, I don't want to make the mistake of trying to do too much equivalency here, but he is uh, the, the, the one who makes communication possible, as I understand it.
2: Alegua is um, the Orisha we speak to first in every ceremony um, because he opens and closes the ways. and uh, Alegua is, is all of the communication everywhere uh, on, on every single level, right If we think about it sort of is the communication between the cells and your bodies, is the communication between the parts of the universe? Uh, you know nothing nothing exists or could happen without Alegua being there to facilitate that transfer of information from one place to another.
1: Right, right. And so I think, you know, that's what makes it so important and so appropriate that he's the first card in the deck. You have to even to open your mouth to gather the air to speak. <laughs> you know, uh, you have to <coughs> be there, right? Um, although he also has a presence um, in a number of other cards as well Um, and what people will see when they look at it is I guess the um, a common representation of Eligua is this sort of stone or concrete head with the cowrie shells embedded in it right? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah when people uh, a common uh, solution a relatively common solution to sort of troubles in people's lives is to receive what's referred to as the warriors mm-hmm. um which is uh, mm-hmm. uh it's a it's an initiation that you don't need to be a priest to have um you know it can be anybody can receive this if it's marked and required and you know they, they come into your life to help you uh fight your problems and overcome your obstacles and so on and what there there's there's actually you know you people are really accustomed to seeing these sort of uh, cement heads with the cowrie shells. But, you know, uh, traditionally, depending on your lineage, um, the, the aleguas, the, they would mark the path of legua, And there are many different ways in which an aleguan might be made. But I chose to make the one that people understand and see the most because I wanted it to be somewhat familiar to people for
1: sure. Right. And this is actually a symbol that ordinary people might have in their homes, right? Maybe. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Well, just real quick, uh, after I got your deck, I had the craziest dream where um, (laughs) I dreamed that I got up and I went outside and this was like around midnight and the UPS truck comes (laughs) and gives me a package with my name on it. And I open it and I suddenly start to feel uh, really strange, like I'm high or I've taken something, ingested some kind of substance. Like just through opening the package. And then I was instantly transported into um, some kind of right that was going on in my dining room and Elegua was there. And I I thought this was, you know, obviously this is not, I knew almost nothing before this week about this, uh, this tradition, but, and I certainly have no way of knowing what significance that had or what, what, you know, I certainly can't speak for the tradition in any way, but but I thought it was so interesting that you know my 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 dream maker chose to take the delivery of your deck to me, you know, as this kind of mind altering, frame shifting event, and then introduce you know this um, this personification of communication, you know, the opener of the ways into the dream. So. Okay. It was, you know, I was very, very grateful for that experience. Um, okay, so the only, the other major I really wanted to make sure we talked about was the, um, the priestess card,
4: mm-hmm.
1: because it's not what most people would normally expect to see in a priestess card, and I thought you could talk a little bit about what we're looking at and how it relates to sure. the high priestess, you know, and love.
2: Mm-hmm. So this is actually one of the cards that gave me the biggest trouble, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time uh, working on this card, there are a bunch of uh, drawings that got scrapped along the way because I was just like, nope, 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 that's not going to cut it. Um, that's too simple. That's too this, too whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what we see, i just finding the card here. So, what we see in the priestess card um, is we see uh, a bunch of cowrie shells, right? right. And the, the Dilogun. Uh, or the cowrie shells are, um, you know, one of the traditional tools of divination, Um, you know, for for lochas, for priests uh, in the way that I'm a priest, it's the way in which we speak with the Orishas. And when we divine with the shells, we, we, we pray and we invoke an opening with a, with a legwa or whoever for, for an odu, for a, a sign, for like a, you know, like a, the idea, almost like a card to sort of a mm-hmm. um, but those those energies, those odus are the living unfolding of the universe. Right. Mm-hmm. So they they represent all of the knowledge that was and is, and all of the possible knowledge of the future um, or possible unfoldings of the future, and so those those energies that arrive when we do a reading and come to play in the life of the person who gets the reading done it's, a, it's actually a serious ceremony to get a reading it yeah. alters the course of your life right, right. and you know when we think about the the priestess or the papas, right mm-hmm. one of the things that we can talk about is knowledge right and as deep metaphysical knowledge right
1: right um, which isn't right? readily accessible to you at a surface level,
2: right? Yeah, and when we think about the the hierophant or the pope uh, as sort of the outer face of spirituality, the high priestess is uh, the inner face. She's the inner mystery of that, right? Right, and she is uh, that knowledge which is hard to get to, that knowledge which is hard won, and that knowledge which is tied to uh, a deep respect and a deep cosmic awareness of the nature of the universe, right? Mm-hmm. And so and this this odor this this odu and the method of divination and the process of divination to me mirrors that right and so Correct. the shells become the mouth of the priestess, right? And if mm-hmm. we look at it in a sort of a rider weight symbol, right?
1: The
2: mm-hmm. uh, and the um the Ota, the
1: black stone. Yes, they
2: mirror. Uh, we use those in, in, in the divination process, but they mirror those two columns.
1: The Boaz and jakin, the, Yeah.
2: The, the the positive and negative vibrations that are in that sort of duality.
1: And those are a kind of a, are they a yes no kind of stand in?
2: Yeah, we use them and other things to to ask specific questions within it, within the reading. We each have there, there's about a half dozen ebo that all have uh, ritual significance and we use them in different ways, depending on the nature of the question we're asking. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other thing that's going on in this card is uh, usually people draw divine on a a straw mat or a tray uh, with fiery shells. Uh, Some people use a wooden tray maybe, but more often than not a straw mat. So I wanted to create this idea of the straw mat, but then this idea that sort of below it is a sort of cosmic opening, right? It's a connection to everything. Yeah. So this is actually probably one of the most abstracted cards in the whole deck. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sort of show an arisha or a thing that's sort of immediately easily connectable. But I mm-hmm. think that, I think that it really represents this sort of that depth of knowledge and connection and direct connection to the voice of the, of creation that mm-hmm. I, I associate with the high priestess and the you know, I associate with this divination process.
1: Yes. Now the Odu themselves, they're transmitted orally, right? It's not something that, you know, you just pick up a book and and not anyone can do it.
2: Yeah. If you are, if you are not a priest, you, you cannot eat Calvary shells, right? Mm Gotcha. There's no, um, the best thing we could say is that, uh, you you don't have the spiritual license Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and my, my elders would be quite clear you know, you can do anything you want with these shells, but they don't, they don't speak for the Orishas. Therefore, whatever you get is irrelevant.
1: Right. And, you know, so it's I, not like in, you know, what we think of as, as tarot readers, you just pick up a deck and anyone can give it a go. This is something right. that you really need to go through initiation and be crowned as a priest to do.
2: And spend a long time studying, right? You know, you need, <laughs> to, you need to understand that. Uh, so there are uh, 256, technically 257, Mm-hmm. signs speak. Each of those signs has uh, a specific hierarchical order of orishas that speak in them.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: each of them has proverbs, uh, songs, ceremonies, offerings, taboos, uh, patakis, um, and then each of those signs can come in uh, ire, like in a sign of blessing, mm-hmm. or a sobo and a negative sign. Um, and then there are many kinds of Ire and Asobo, and if you start multiplying those out, you start to realize how many different permutations are possible in this system. Right. It's a very long time, a lot of study to really come to understand what all those things mean. And yeah.
1: Yeah. And is that something that, so this is something that you might do as a priest, correct? And is it, did you internalize all of those 256, 257 signs, or was it, is it an ongoing study? How does that work for you? There's,
2: there's no end to the study. Right, right. Like
1: hermeticism.
2: when do you know enough? You never know
1: enough. Oh, you never know enough. No, 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 (laughs) there. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's, um, that's really helpful in terms of getting into the card. Are there any other majors that you'd kind of like to draw attention to before we look at minors? No, I'm, I'm happy to take your lead. Okay, great. And I'm, you know, honestly, I would love to go through every single card in the deck, and I was having a lot of trouble sort of singling out a few that might be interesting to talk about. But, uh, but uh, given our time constraints, we'll just focus on some. I was looking at uh, the Nine of Wands, we're kind of going in order here. Nine of Wands, um, and what you see on this card, it's it's so interesting because, uh, as I understand it from from your story, this is a representation of Yemaya, or one of her uh, avatars, I guess. And uh, and there's a there's a shipwreck un- or a or a uh, underwater sh- ship and. Uh, Got a knife and the knife has clearly just been used so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that
2: yeah i mean one of the things that people in making the deck i wanted to uh disrupt people's preconceived notions right mm-hmm. uh, of certain things um you know like people are people it's common for people to say oh yeah yeah if you want love go and talk to Oshun." Right? No shun will help you find love.
4: But
2: mm-hmm. it's possible, right? It mm-hmm. depends on which you're and what context and and so on and so on, right? Um, but you know, shun also doesn't really uh dig people complaining very much. It's not a thing that she's really that into. Mm-hmm. And so depending on the attitude in which you're you're feeling about this, Shun might also be irritated by you approaching her about it. So it's very hard to say, right? Yeah. And so um, which is why you know traditional practitioners lying right? Because right. the real answer is, in in traditional divination, any Orisha that offers to help you with a problem can help you with that problem, and right. whether we would sort of generally associate that with being their purview or not doesn't really matter, because if they say they're going to help, they're going to help, and you just say thank you, right? Right. And so when we think about Yemaya, um, people think about Yemaya as a sort of uh, uh, loving mother energy as a sort of always supportive uh, energy, right? You know, we mm-hmm. really um, sometimes people are sent to work with her when they need sort of grounding and stabilizing in their emotions, right? Yeah. But you know, Yamaya also has many roads and has has many avatars, right? Mm-hmm. So talking about you know Okoto, um, it's not gentle she's really more of a lot more like a shark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this, the, the idea, this, the thing that people often say is that, uh, you know, when, when the, when the shipwrecks, she, she grabs the sailors and takes them down to their fate. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this, this real sort of uh, show of strength and power with her. that isn't what we would normally associate with it, um, but which is, which is a hundred percent a part of her, personality, or at least her personality on that path, right?
1: Right. And I actually thought that this was, you know, the more I thought about it, the more strongly tied it felt to my own understanding of this card. I mean, when I think of the Nine of Wands, I think of someone who has been derived their strength from the vicissitudes of life, from, you know, the experiences of having suffered and having learned. Yeah. And, and I think that it's also, I also think of it as a very lunar card, you know, so that kind of made it feel familiar to me as well. But, um, but also the fact that, you know, that power has a impersonality and ruthlessness to it as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the nine of wands, when it shows up to talk about people it can speak of people who are um, strong, clear, incredibly competent and sometimes hard for other people to relate to because of those things,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, they've been through a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. So, um and plus it's just beautiful. Just um, you know, you see the the body of Yemaya, but you don't at first you may not even recognize that it's a human form because of, you know, blue on blue. It's a very underwater card. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, looking at uh, oh, you know, one of my favorite cards of all is your um, is your ten of cups, and uh, which I which I did receive this week once. Uh, and I, what I love about it is, um, is the story that goes along with it. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure. So when we were talking um, earlier in the podcast about uh, picking your you or picking your destiny, right? Mm-hmm. This card represents that that process right
4: mm-hmm. uh,
2: you know when everybody's hanging out up in uh over up on the other side where you know where we're all spirits um eventually you know people for whatever reasons decide it's time to come back to earth right it's time to come down here you know to the marketplace to hang out and party to fulfill something they haven't fulfilled whatever it may be and um when they make that decision they go you know as, as my elders describe it you go down down the hall to this room where Ajala who is uh, the orisha who crafts these destinies uh as a series of sealed gourds. Um, and that's
1: the picture that we see on the on the card you see Ajala with the gourds. Uh,
2: yeah. yeah, I mean I think of it more as a person choosing their destiny. Oh, okay, I see.
4: All right. The
2: mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but maybe I don't. It was, Could uh, be right. Edge <laughs> ad, laws, at least as far as I know, I have never come across any personifications of them.
1: So, so this, so in your mind, this was the soul, right, choosing yeah. which one.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, and um, but and we don't have a like a sort of super clear sense of karma or carryover from one life or another. It's it's not really it's kind of a, a mystery that we don't we acknowledge that we don't fully understand, right? Mm-hmm. So. Full of sealed gourds, and you pick something, and you know it could be horrible, right? It could be great, it right. could be whatever. Um, but if you if you've been good friends with Allegra, you know, and if you've kind of kept good faith with him, yeah, maybe maybe kind of like you reach out for something, and he gives a little cough and says, "Hey, not that one, pick <laughs> that one, right?"
1: And I love this that you have this little sketch of Allegra under the table. You right? know, yeah, very exactly. quiet, very yeah. subtle. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> just giving <laughs> him.
2: Yeah, and then, so once you picture destiny, you go back and see the creator, uh, and they breathe life into you, and your soul goes into a body.
1: And you can see in the background of the card, you can see the outline of the earth. So, you know, yeah. this is this idea that you're outside of the material realm at that moment, choosing yeah. your fate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's just really beautiful. And I think it's quite relatable to, uh, you know, in a traditional sense, to the Ten of Cups, which we... I at least think of as very much the end of a cycle, you know, um, I often think of it as the end of the complete sequence of minors in some ways because, uh, if you go through correspondences, it immediately precedes the two of wands. But there's also this feeling, you know, when you see the family on the right, awaits Smith ten of cups, of this sort of being a they're taking a bow, right? This is this this destiny is finished, and we're looking and towards also, the next. People,
2: people, the belief is that people tend to reincarnate along family lines, right? So right. It's also
1: returning to that family, right? Right, right. You know, so there's he, definitely a feeling of kindred uh, yeah. there. Uh, speaking of which. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just going to uh, look at the Eight of Cups as well, because I think that one is a little, um, may not be as obvious to people when they look at it, what the relationship is to uh, the Eight of Cups we know and love.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the Eight of Cups, I chose to represent sort of all of the ancestral traditions or pieces that get practiced. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the background, there's a sort of, uh, you know, Boveda practice or spiritism practice. Mm-hmm. Represent uh, the cups and the big cup with the cross in it in the mm-hmm. front. The, the practice of feeding the ancestors, um, and sharing with them that that is part of the egoon practice and, the, and that stick that we use to uh when we're praying to the egun. And then there's this other sort of abstract shape, which is in Ifa, there's this tile that's made, um, that goes uh, where people will worship their ancestors to help manage that energy. Mm-hmm. You know, the Eight of Cups is, you know, it's a card where um, you know can deal with loss and deal with lack of direction, deal with being stuck. And one of the places that we point people often, especially for people beginning to find their way in these traditions, is to go and sort out their stuff with their ego, right? Mm-hmm. Go sort out their stuff with their ancestors to, to start taking care of those spirits and start building a relationship with that. Because one of the things is if we don't have a good foundation with those ancestors. Um, They can block everything else that we're doing. Uh, Even the Orishas, you know, there can be times where the Ego won't allow anything to happen because they they need something or they want something or they don't want something. And so, you know, this is a card where we sort of um, run into that energy that can sort of, that can lead to opening the roads, but often isn't where people want to go or want to start with because, you know, lots of people, lots of people have issues with their ancestors, right? Right. so,
1: yeah, yeah, and I thought it was interesting. So the 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 sort of central element in the card is is a tree, and the tree you know, made me think of the family tree, the connections with those who came before and those who will come after you. Uh, before the tree is the offering, um, and so you know, to me, now that you explain it, I can see the relationship with what I know of as the Eight of Cups, the idea that. You know at in your darkest moments, where do you turn mm-hmm. you know, Absolutely. yeah, and what yeah. what um, what drives you from that moment? what brought you to that moment, and what brings you out of it okay. and you know, I think that that card, even though we normally see it as a person turning away and walking away from something or walking towards something it 's ambiguous, I think that there's a real sense of passing between realms you know
2: absolutely yeah
1: and i think that that makes a lot of sense as far as this um the symbolic representations that you have in the card go yeah okay um so swords oh you know i think that uh i was talking with a friend about your three of swords because i thought it was such a powerful story and of course the three of swords is a card that I think it's really important for people to get to know and face better because in, you know, for example, in Writer Wade smith you have those three swords piercing a heart. And it's such a, you know, viscerally striking image that sometimes people almost don't want to engage with it in any kind of way. So I think it's really helpful that there's not just a sorrowful story attached to it in your deck, but one that, you know, has complexity, that has nuance, that has uh, sort of human psychology that you can dig into. So, um, the the card itself um, is n- rather than <laughs> rather than showing three s- swords, uh, we have instead the figure in the front, who is Ochosi I think, uh, and then Ochoi the hunter, and then you see the figure in the background. And would you tell a little bit of that story?
2: Sure. So Ochosi is, uh, Ochosi is a hunter, and Ochosi is known for being uh, just. Mm -hmm. Um, And Ochosi is like the letter of the law, no exceptions, no mercy kind of justice, right? So if people, you know, need justice, and they go to Ochosi, you 100% better be in the right, because uh, Ochosi will, you know, let the blame fall where it needs to fall. And if that's partly on you, you know, be, be aware of that before you approach it, right?
1: Right, and there are several concepts of justice uh, within the tradition as well, which I think you mentioned on your justice card, right? For sure, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one day, uh, Olfen, uh one of the aspects of the creator, uh, asked Chosen to go and catch this bird. And uh, being a masterful hunter, he went and did that, uh, and brought it home and, and left it in a little cage before he was going to take it down. And uh, uh, his mother, Yamaya came out and seen the bird assumed it was for dinner and uh you know killed it plucked it and started cooking it and then when Ochosi came home uh he saw that the bird was gone and he he was angry because it had been so hard to get his hands on right it was a rare and hard to find in the forest Mm -hmm. um and so he you know obviously wanted to please the creator so he went out and uh uh pursued another one and caught it and brought it and Olofin was so pleased that he said he would grant him whatever whatever wish he had. And Ochosi uh, said that he wanted to uh, have his arrow be cursed such that whoever had stolen this bird would be struck down by it wherever they were. So <laughs> Olofin agreed, and uh, Ochosi fired his arrow, you know, over the forest, and of course it struck down and killed his mother. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, of course, the arishas are arishas and not people, so she later gets brought back to life and so on. Um, But, you know, it's that lesson on our nature and the way in which our nature and our insistence on certain things can cause us tremendous unforeseen suffering, you know. And I think that that three of swords is a card where um, not that inflexibility is the only cause of suffering, but it's certainly a common cause of suffering because the actual point, that or the, the issue of the caused the suffering is usually over at the point where i see the three of swords right
1: right usually right.
2: done and it's how we feel about it and what we do about it do we double down on it do we commit to it do we wallow in it do we live afraid forever you know it's it's all of those kinds of questions and energies
1: yeah i think you know, i i absolutely agree i think that with the three of swords there's always this um feeling that it's the thing that you realize that you now cannot unrealize it's the thing you, yeah. see, and you see and how you deal with that is really important because you you know try to deny it you're in for a world of consequences
2: exactly. yeah. <laughs> right? so it's occurred we're being somewhat buddhist about it you know mm-hmm. right. well mm-hmm. attachment isn't helping me here how do i become unattached to this outcome
1: yeah. Right. And I think it's really important, too, that the moment in the story that you chose to represent, because we're looking at Ochoce with his back to us. It's not before he's done it. It's not the moment where he's you know, possessed by wrath and deciding that his uh, arrow must be cursed. It's yeah. the moment where he realizes what he's done.
2: Exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he sees the figure of his mother through the trees there. Yeah, it's incredibly powerful and I think, you know, really, really resonant. You don't need to see three arrows to understand the pain of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, and uh, and the I guess one other minor I'd like to talk about is the two of discs. Um, it's interesting. I, I actually went to the two of discs as one of the first cards because I wondered if you'd sign it because I know that that's a Marseille tradition, but your signature is, in fact, on the Ace of Wands. Yeah. Which uh, I guess is, has to do with your connection with Shango. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But, uh, But the two of this is interesting to me because, um, you know, with Smith, you see the, uh, you know, the, the person juggling the two pentacles and which has always stuck struck me as a fairly static representation of the idea of change that goes with this card. So, what was the nature of the change that you were representing in your Two of Disks?
2: So, um, the, in the story of the Two of Disks, uh, there, there was this, uh, this person named Mewa who was uh, responsible for this town. And uh, Mewa was a, a powerful magician and they kept all the negative things in the world locked away through the power of their magic. Um, mm-hmm. Death, sickness, all of these things, they kept them locked in boxes and cauldrons and things in the back of their, in, of their house, right?
4: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and because, because they spent so much time around these energies, and because they were kind of mysterious, people didn't really like Mewa that much. And um, they kind of feared him and were suspicious of him. And uh, you know, one day uh, this new person came to town named Iogbe, and Iogbe was uh, you know young and vibrant and full of life and fun and the life of the party and all of these kinds of things. And um, so over time, the people decided that uh, that they wanted Iogbe as their leader instead of Mewa. And uh, instead of dealing with it in a direct manner, they decided to, uh, to cheat Mewa out of their, out of their rulership. Mm-hmm. And so they, they got Aogbe to challenge Mewa to, uh, uh, to cut down these trees with uh, machetes. And when they gave the machetes out, they had blunted the one for Mewa. Mm. So, of course, Aogbe uh, wins in no time. And Mewa immediately realizes uh, what has been done, right? As soon right. as Machete he's Machete's like, oh, you, you people have done this now. I see what's going on. <laughs> and uh, so so Mewa says, okay, if you really want a way to be your leader, no problem. Here you are. And I'm also going to release everything that I've been holding for all of you. you can have- <laughs> um, right. And so death and sickness and loss and uh, gossip, and all of the negativities uh, were released that day. And then as their final curse on the world, uh, Mewa said, and and on top of all of these things, I'm also going to curse you with money. So mm. you can fight about what everything is worth. And so he, he unleashed that as well and then left. And so the card shows uh, the trees with the machetes uh, and the sort of smoke of this sort of unleashing of, you know, all of these energies into into the world, into people's lives. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's a wild story. And I think, you know, often when we see the two of discs, it's, we receive it as a pretty, um, it's often visually represented as a pretty positive card. But I think as people, we often are very fearful of change. You know, change itself is not something that most of us advocate for really, you know, we don't really want to live in interesting times. <laughs> and, uh, and I also think that uh, the idea to, that this story contains about the invention of money seems so appropriate mm-hmm. for the two of disks. Um, well,
2: you know, I think of the, I think of the two of disks as being, um, you know, I, I often associate it with being like a ship riding the waves on the sea, right? Right. It's right. dynamic and there's movement and it might be calm one day and, and waving another and the the question is not not only how do we deal with what's immediately in front of us but how do we navigate and continue to navigate the ups and downs of life as we move forward right, right. But that juggling thing although it's you know the juggler is perhaps static the juggling is incredibly dynamic
4: mm-hmm. in air,
2: being tossed up and down in the air how do we roll with that and, and manage our capacity to roll with that so that we can <laughs> get ahead in life and and weather those storms, you know, and, and overcome those things.
1: Right. And, you know, from a her- kind of hermetic point of view, you know, the two of disks is associated with uh, Jupiter ruling the first decade of Capricorn, Jupiter, of course, being represented in Golden Dawn-related decks as the Wheel of Fortune. And this is about writing fortune up, down, wherever it takes you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, if yeah, yeah.
2: If you're lucky or if you're wise, you get some of that uh, potential Capricorn Consistent solid work. Well, it.
1: exactly. It's, uh, you know, Saturn versus Jupiter, right? right. You know, yes. it's the engines that, the the uh, compression and expansion that drive the engines of change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so I guess one, before we go on to talking about the spread you included, which I'm really interested in, um, I wanted to know how your relationship with Shango. May, may or may not have influenced his representation in your deck uh, did you communicate, you know, did you ask, did you, you know, in what way did your own personal relationship with the Orisha um, make, guide your artistic decisions um, well <sighs>
2: <yeah. laughs> if, if you ask any child of Shango, they'll tell you it's great to be a child of Shango yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll start with that good um, mm-hmm. being a child of Shango, Shango is great um you know, but and and but Shango is also generally pretty easy going. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, Shango's and orisha is like the life of the party and really if you uh if you give him some food and you know, maybe a glass of wine, he's probably pretty happy, right? Um the 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 Orisha that was the most challenging and that I felt the most interaction with uh when making this deck was Oshun. Mm. And, you know, I, I drew, I must have drawn a dozen different cards with those shooting in it.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
2: no, that's not what I look like. That's wow. not, that's like, I mean, it wasn't that verbal, but I could just feel the sense of like, no. I'd look, <laughs> I'd like, All right, delete. Try. Again. So
1: just to sort of go over this for people who aren't familiar with the Orisha. So is it correct to say? uh sorry that oshun is an orisha of love um that she's one of the primary orisha she's associated with i think the color yellow um that she um that that people go to her for as something of a venus figure i guess
2: yeah i mean i think that that's, that that is that is definitely sort of a popular culture true.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: i mean oshun is ultimately a mystery and nobody knows knows oshun but oshun right Mm-hmm. Uh, you know they say that she uh she uh cries when she's happy uh she laughs when she's angry all
1: right uh, i see yeah and, yeah. and
2: that <coughs> we can never really know or understand what what is going on with Oshun because she is fundamentally a mystery she's
1: and she is associated with, with rivers is that right
2: yeah she's she's often associated with the river
1: mm-hmm. uh, sweet waters
2: Mm -hmm. yeah it depends on who Mm -hmm. she is which path right yeah yeah my my path of ocean is uh associated with the vulture right right um and and other things there there are many different permutations you know my my elder um uh willie ramos has a great book on the paths of ocean which you can get online in places like that Mm -hmm.
4: and
2: and, uh it talks all about the different paths of oceans and what they're like and so on And it's it's tremendously eye opening because, you know, love love is one piece of it, but it's definitely Mm -hmm. not her primary attribute. You know, gotcha. Yeah. Between between her and her and Shango, they both represent different aspects of the the joy of being alive. Um, Yeah. But Oshun also, you know, can also be that bitterness of life as well, right?
1: Yeah, I think I was fascinated by your choice to show her, and I think the judgment card where you see the peacock transforming into the vulture as it's burnt by the rays of the sun. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so, so you were saying that she was the one who you struggled with the most to depict?
2: Yeah, she was gonna be in, in a number of other places and, and I felt like she didn't want to or she didn't like the art that I made or whatever. And so uh, mm-hmm. so she's there she's where she is, but she's not, she's not nearly as many cards as I thought she might originally be. Mm-hmm. She wasn't happy with some of the stories I was telling or how I told them. And there were a couple of stories that are uh, maybe not as favorable to Oshun. And, and the feeling I had was just don't tell those stories. <laughs> <I was>
1: like,
2: <laughs> people get involved in the traditional finding if they need to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. <coughs> mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, um, So you include a spread at the back, a (coughs) four-card spread. Can you tell us about the creation of that spread?
2: Yeah, I mean, I love making up spreads, right? I do a lot Mm -hmm. of creating spreads. And, um, you know, I really wanted to sort of um, try and create a spread that gave people an understanding of some of the, I don't know, almost like philosophical considerations of the dynamics of. Living a life in relationship to advice from the arishas, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or living a life based on some of these philosophies and so on, right? Mm-hmm. So, the four cards are you know, there's irre, right? There's the blessings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what good is going to come from going down this road, whatever question you're asking. Uh, osobo negativity, what are the obstacles that are going on here, right? Uh, ashe, which is you know, it's the energy of the universe, and it's really, it really kind of talks about in this context um what are the what are the what are the things that you've got going for you what's on your side right what's actually gonna like show up and help you here um and then the fourth one is free will right because you know we can get all the good advice and have all the spirits behind us we want and still not do anything right
1: exactly exactly you know
2: and then and then the, the idea is once you've um uh once you put all these down if you uh, if you then um uh, you know, total them up and do a little math and reduce it down to a trump card and put that in the middle as sort of the outcome of what. Ah,
1: okay. So, so you, you did stuff. some numerology you're including in there. Mm-hmm. Right,
2: right? You know, mm-hmm. and so you just add those up, and then that gives you an idea of what the outcome is, right? Yeah. And yeah. The idea is that you know all of these cards have a uh, have a story with each other, right? You know, mm-hmm. what does what does the middle card look like with the negativity? What does it look like with the positivity? What does it what does it add to the conversation about free will, right? And exactly. So,
1: yeah, so you have, so in first and second positions, you have the blessings and the difficulties and third and fourth, you essentially have uh, something representing fate and something representing free will. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's-,
2: you know, that's, that's here that, that I think people will be, will be interesting to sort of see how people do with It is, you know, if, if in the blessings cards, you get something that has nothing to do with, what you actually want from this situation? So yes. It, right? Stop, right? Yeah. Just don't yeah. continue, right? Right. And, you know, right. There's this notion. Or
1: if you get Rubaeus in Geoma- in geomancy, as <laughs> your
2: yeah. first. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Forget it. You're done. Don't bother. Not today, right? Yeah. I think yeah. It's important to to have these clear markers that just say to you, "Hey, this is not going where you want it to go."
4: Yeah.
1: Right? Yeah. Um,
2: but it's hard, right? Because it's hard to feel like we're giving up free will and, and all that kind of stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and have you been reading with the deck uh, since you got your copy? Have you been doing your own sort of drawings for yourself with it?
2: I have been doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's been interesting. You know, it's really interesting to it's it's a completely different experience to read with a deck that you know completely, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> I, I should think so. Yeah, yeah. So what have you what have what, what surprised you about that?
2: I mean it really I fancy myself a little bit of a storyteller and -hmm. it really facilitates that process, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah. There's
2: a lot of like storytelling that I can easily slide into with this Mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of storying that, um, uh, that isn't, uh, just sort of abstracted stories from other people or stories from my personal life, but sort of, you know, there's a body of material that I have to speak from that, that I don't necessarily bring into my, uh, uh, you know, into my other reading practices. But
1: shows mm-hmm.
2: up you know, right?
1: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm, what I'm really interested in is how, you know, when you bring it to the context of the reading, whatever it is, the day ahead or the question you're reading for, what happens? Do you find yourself instantly kind of going to the body of knowledge that you brought to the card? Or is it easy for you to apply in a more practical way?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with... Uh, one of the reasons why I read with Marseille decks a lot is I'm I'm with that whole sort of uh, open body, reading body of people you know like you all of Vendove and, and, and Enrique and uh, you know and Amelia mm-hmm. and others where it's like I read what I see right yeah so when I when I look at the cards I mean I don't get it in my book and read it um, right I just look at what I see and I read those things and and then I allow that to to trigger whatever needs to emerge from that process. I mean, generally speaking, I don't know that we have time to get into today, but I can, mm-hmm. I can say that my, uh, I'll make a separate thing about it sometime for for the podcast, but my, my personal reading process is usually a really elaborate multi-deck process these days. That, oh, wow.
1: <laughs>
2: that, that two or three times a week, and I sit down and spend about an hour going through and, uh, you know, looking at the cards and journaling and, and making art and, you know, this yeah. whole process it takes a long time for me. Yeah. Uh, because I'm allowing the cards to really just dictate that and show me where it's going. So, right. I'll, I'll share that somewhere else when the room.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, since, you know, you mentioned this elaborate reading and we're actually almost out of time, I was wondering if you'd like to do either I do or you do a one card reading to sort of finish things off.
2: Sure. Do you want, and, to do a
1: read- <laughs> do you want me to read or do you want to yeah. read yourself? Oh, I want you, to you want me to read? Okay. Yeah. All right. So, um, okay. Do you have something that you would like to ask?
2: Uh, I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, let's, let's ask at the deck, how the, how the launch of the deck is going to go.
1: Okay. All right. right. Let's ask. It. <laughs> okay. So I'm shuffling now because, uh, I had to, I had things really, uh, sorted out into theirs. It was all ordered in sequence. So, I know I have to shuffle a bunch of times to get that sorted out. Okay, and by the way, um, I really love—I love the backs too. They're—they're they're really striking, red, black, and white but de- uh, backs. And the only problem is that I can—I I now know from the red uh, from the wear patterns whether it's going to come out reverse or upright.
2: <laughs> there you go. Well, that's what you get for paying so much attention.
1: So. <laughs> Curse of the Virgo, I'm telling yeah. you. Okay. All right. So I'm uh, just uh, laying them out now. And then so the question was, uh, how is the launch of the deck going to go? Or maybe maybe we should say what you need to know about it. Okay. Um, All right. Okay. This is the card that wants to come out. (laughs) So, Andrew, I got the five of cups. Five of
2: cups. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> so, um, so this is the story I think that you mentioned about, this is a, this is a story of, um, a love triangle as I understand it. Um, and the idea that, uh, that, that the Orisha you depicted in this card, whose name, I can't recall off the top of my head, uh, was trying to look for ways to, um, to make her lover more attracted to her and was giving some some poor advice. So, um, so I guess, you know, when we look at five of cups, it's, it's tempting to get pretty negative about it. And I, I think that's not necessarily something you have to do, but I think that perhaps one thing we might say in terms of like the launching of your deck that, you know, that, a couple of things. Number one, you're gonna have to let go in some sense the reception of the deck, right? Because it's no longer yours in some sense, once it's out there.
2: Right? Also known as don't read the comments.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It is it belongs to the world now as well as you.
4: Yeah.
1: Right. And uh and that can be you know cause for mourning in its own way because you no longer control the reception or the interpretation and uh, and and it and then it may in some ways feel like a loss for sure you know but i think the truth of any 5 of cups is that that loss is you know is although it may cause pain to you it's also a gift to someone else you know, it transforms when um, mm-hmm. you give up, trans- the sacrifice you make transforms into something else. And that it's important to let that do its work in the world. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, Susie, why didn't you pick the star? <laughs> pick something better, pick something
2: better. <laughs> We release it into the world and we we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. We release it into the world and re- re- recognize the limits, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that you know, five of cups. The, one of the downfalls is uh, you know what Crowley would have called the lust of results, right? Exactly. That's exactly. Overreaching and grabbing after things. It's like, I can't that's do right.
1: right. Does not that. matter. Need not be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've I've published a bunch of times myself, and you know, it never it never goes out. It never turns out exactly the way you anticipate or hope. You know.
2: For sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I'm looking forward to seeing where where it all ends up. So,
1: well, yeah. I think you know I have to say this this has been a really fantastic deck to work with in the week that I've been working with it. The uh, getting to know a little bit about the tradition has been an honor and a delight, and uh, and I really thank you for putting this out there in the world.
2: Well, and thank you for uh, making time to uh, both spend time with the deck in advance of doing this interview, and for doing the interview today, and uh, you know. Uh, people should definitely check out uh, Susie and Mel's podcast, Fortune Wheelhouse, and also Susie's new book coming out this fall. So definitely.
1: Yep. The, uh, you can find anything to do with what I do at uh, my brand new, spanking new, fresh, fresh paint, freshly painted website, www.tsusanchang.com. Yeah, and the book Tarot Correspondences is coming out in October, just around the corner.
2: Perfect. And the Arisha yep. deck is... Uh, through, for sale through the probably through your local store, uh, definitely through Amazon, and uh, I've got them uh, currently pre-sale, but they're arriving this week, so they should start shipping this week. Um, yeah,
1: pre-orders are going out, aren't they?
2: I'm, yeah, I'm just waiting for the for the final shipment to arrive next week. So
1: fantastic, fantastic.
2: Right. Thanks, Susie.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.
2: So my
0: friends, I hope that you enjoyed that episode. Uh, I hope that if you have grabbed a copy of the deck, you are enjoying it. It is 100% out uh, as of the time of this posting. I've got them at the shop. You can order them from me. Uh, You can also get them from Amazon and, uh, as we said, wherever good books are sold. Uh, If you are sharing stuff about it on social media, please feel free to tag me. I would love to see what you're up to with it and to hear your thoughts. I am at the Hermit's Lamp pretty much everywhere. All right, we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you, as always, for listening.